talk show for all things automotive. From the latest news to the greatest views and the biggest names in rolling iron. Your host is Brett Hatfield, freelance auto journalist, senior auction analyst for Sports Car Market Magazine and American Car Collector Magazine, writer and editor of ReadTheDriven.com and owner of his own small but growing fleet of cool cars. Get behind the wheel of an hour of car talk starting right now. Thank you for listening to Driven Radio. We know your time's valuable, so we work hard to bring you the best in automotive content and interviews. You can listen to us online at readthedriven.com, on iTunes, Pippa, Stitcher, Google Play, and everywhere fine podcasts are heard. Please follow us on Facebook at forward slash Driven Radio Show, on Twitter at Driven Radio Show, and on Instagram at Read the Driven. We are coming to you from Driven Radio Studios in Overland Park, Kansas. I'm your host, Brett Hatfield, here with my co-host, Vern Estes, Shelby expert and owner of the world's lowest volume car dealership and our intrepid engineer, Matthew Hickman. This week we have news about a local woman using technology to snare the woman who stole her car and the new Ford Bronco pickup... Maybe. Uh, our special guest this week is Kyle Smith of Haggerty Insurance, who will be talking to us about driving a 1917 Peerless Speedster over 2,300 miles in the Great Race. we got a lot to cover this week, so let's get to it. So, starting off in, uh, in Car World news, I, can't, I love this story because it is not only local, but it's, I mean, it borders, it's awesome. it borders on hilarious. It's awesome. So, it's a Kansas City area woman whose car got stolen. She tracked it down and basically stole the car back. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty unbelievable. I love that. You know, when a thief stole Daniel Reno, Reno's Toyota 4Runner, Reno, Reno didn't sit by the phone waiting for word of a recovery. Reno had stopped at a local quick trip to get her daughter, and in the few moments she was away from the 4Runner, someone hopped in and stole it. She so, let, now, my understanding is, because it's been so hot here in town lately, that she left the car running with the AC on. Smart. No, it's, it's not smart, but it does happen. Yeah. So... You know, basically, um, the thief got away with Reno's purse, cell phone, wallet, and credit cards. Reno's left with a call to the police and a day with the police report. She turned at least one of her credit cards back on, suspecting the thief might try to use it. And as she started tracking the credit card as the perps, the perps bought something at Taco Bell of all places. <laughs> Taco Bell, Walmart, and gas stations. She also tracked her cell phone's location. Two days after the theft, one of the credit cards was run at another quick trip. Reno ran down to the gas station where the clerk told her that one of the women in the vehicle said they'd be going to Applebee's for dinner. That's absolute dumb Which, luck. So why would you... Here's what... Difficult... Why would you have talked about that with a gas station attendant? Like, oh, I'm just buying my pack of gum. I'm getting a Gatorade. Hey, I'm going to... I'm going to Applebee's later. Just, like, what kind of... Who tells a quick trip attendant, like, where they're going for dinner that night? You know, a chatty thief is one that's going to eventually get napped. Yeah, they just stole a purse full of credit cards and, like... I'm treating myself to Applebee's tonight. Hey. Like, that was their big dinner. Oh, what <laughs> Do you think she was standing in the quick trip saying, hey, we're all going to Applebee's. Do you want to come with us? So Reno and her sister staked out the local Applebee's. So they're sitting low in their dash, you know, watching the front door. <laughs> Lo and behold, they see these people show up at Applebee's. Oh, for ki- you got to be kidding me. They go in the restaurant. She has an extra key to the Forerunner, and she just jumps back in it, starts it up, and steals her own car back. That's awesome. That's absolutely awesome. Yeah. And 
I wonder if they got like the two for twenty five special. Like they were in buying Applebee's on her credit card while she's stealing her car do you, back. Do you think they went cheap or they they looked at it and said we're getting? They shrimp. went for like the fourteen ounce sirloin oh, with yeah. the shrimp on the oh, side. Oh yeah, for well, sure. I'm getting yeah. the shrimp. Baby. And they paid like the dollar fifty extra for the twice baked potato <laughs> instead of the regular baked potato. And then they got that molten lava chocolate cake for sure. They think, went all out. I don't think I could make it out without that uh, the grilled chicken breast that's got the cheese and the little uh, uh, tortilla strips and whatever that one's called. Well, when it's somebody else's credit card, you just order everything on the menu. Oh, that's awesome. I love it. Well, anyway, they called the cops. The cops showed up and arrested this gal, and uh, the owner, this, this Danielle Reno, got in her car and said that, oh, Lord, this is so bad, uh, said that there was an awful smell inside, and apparently there were bodily fluids in the seats, mm. and uh, they'd broken the back hatch so it wouldn't open anymore, and uh, but they've but, been to Applebee's the night before and left their leftovers in it. That's what happened. That was the awful smell. Well, here's the bonus. Sheriffs told Reno she could keep the beer the thieves left in her child's car seat. Hmm. So she got a commission out of getting her car stolen. That's good. Unbelievable. Uh, we've got the link to that one, and it will be up on readthedriven.com. Now, new Bronco pickup coming. We've seen Bronco prototypes lugging around Dearborn and the Detroit area also colorado for quite a long time and that's kind of the rumor now is that they are you know considering doing a number of different body styles just like in the 66 to 77 era well the only the only uh this is the worst kept secret in all of cardom it's the only uh manufacturer secret that could possibly be worse than the next generation corvette oh sure yeah everybody if by secret you mean carefully planned succession of leaks yes absolutely to, to, to spur on constant news content of the cars then it, yeah it's, it's a, a secret. non-secret but now it looks like uh ford is going to, you know they're their target market on this has always been people who are buying Jeep Wranglers. Right, or people that were waiting for the Chevy Blazer to come out and then saw that it was just a glorified oh, like crossover SUV or I, hatchback. Right. I can't believe how bad that was. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, it looks like Ford is also going to go after the people who are looking at the Wrangler-based Gladiator. Pickup. Which makes sense because that Gladiator is already selling like hotcakes. It's pretty much the subject of every car review I've seen in the last couple weeks it is uh, so much so that i looked at them i think they're pretty cool and i wouldn't mind having one i think they're neat too i think it's nice that a manufacturer kind of steps out on the edge and, and makes something that's that seems like a niche car slash truck but in the day they're going to sell a bunch of them well a- according to uh industry analyst auto forecast solutions uh ford is planning a bronco based pickup that will bow sometime in 2024 now the delay between the bronco launch in either 2020 or 2021 and the pickup launch is ford has two other pickups coming out uh one is the new ford ranger that's going to come out and another one is based on the front wheel drive platform from the ford focus sure uh and then the uh which is interesting that that focus derived pickup is almost it almost seems like that's replacing what the Ranger used to be and what the new Ranger is now is it's it's kind well, of a, just a slightly smaller F one fifty. I mean it's got a lot of the capability of an F one fifty. Well, and we've talked about this. Go back twenty years. I still drive a twenty year old Navigator. That was a full size SUV. Mm-hmm. You park it next to a new Navigator, and mine now looks like what midsize SUVs are. Sure. Everything's gotten so much bigger. So the Bronco coming out with a midsize 
midsize retro styled pickup. Uh, that midsize is really what f- full size was just a few years back. Sure. And, you know, I'd be interested to see what it looks like. I'm still very interested to see what the new Bronco looks like, being that I've got an old Bronco. And, uh, you know, I'm really, really hoping that they do do a two door traditional style Bronco, but being that they're chasing the uh, the Jeep Wrangler market, and most of the Wranglers you see now are four doors, it'll be kind of interesting to see what happens. Sure. Uh, I'm really, really looking forward to it. I'm hoping that Ford doesn't disappoint. So our special guest this week is going to be Kyle Smith, associate editor of Haggerty Magazine. Kyle will be here to discuss competing in the great race in a 1917 Peerless Speedster and what it takes to be successful in timed rallies. Uh, Kyle is a neat guy. He's also a McPherson alum, so tough to say anything bad about old Kyle. Sure. Yeah. And uh, he showed up at Luke's this year for the uh, terrific post-McPherson car show uh, barbecue. Kyle's a fun guy. We'll have him here and uh, a whole lot more coming up on Driven Radio. back to Driven Radio, coming to you from Driven Radio Studios in Overland Park, Kansas. Our special guest this week is Kyle Smith. Kyle's a McPherson College Restoration Program alum, a Corvair lover, and an aficionado of unplanned road trips. He's also an associate editor for Haggerty Magazine and a repeat offender and competitor in the great race, piloting a 1917 peerless speedster known as the Green Dragon, along with his navigator, Brett Laronis. And they, is it Laronis, Kyle? Is it pronounced? It is Laronis, yeah. They just completed and finished 19th overall in the great race. Uh, He's been called a lot of things, but never boring. Kyle, welcome to Driven Radio. Thanks, Brad. Glad to have you guys. Now, you guys just finished the great race. For the uninitiated, explain what the great race is, where it takes place. Just give us a rundown. Yeah, so it's pretty much the biggest epic longest road trip that you really want to take on in a pre-1975 car but it's more than a road trip they also throw in the time speed distance rally uh so this year we went from riverside california all the way up to tacoma washington covered 2300 miles Jeez, that's a long trip it was a big trip and you know we did it in that 17 peerless which was just amazing but the whole point of it is to do the math and to accomplish the rally master's direction and a follow them to the letter so we're trying to arrive through checkpoints where we don't know where they are at the perfect time so I, I, does everybody leave at the same time or is it staged where you everybody leaves every 30 seconds or something like that yeah so everybody leaves on one minute intervals which really tries to keep us far enough apart that you can't just simply follow somebody because the directions are real cryptic and your navigator's doing a lot of work to try and keep us on course. And so if you're one minute apart, oftentimes you can't look up the road and just follow somebody into a left or a right turn. 
you actually have to figure it out for yourself. Or if you do end up chasing them down, you know that you're wrong because you're not supposed to be there. Uh, it's not a flat out speed competition. It's more of a driving accuracy thing. And oftentimes we aren't going any faster than about 50 miles an hour unless you screw up and make some mistakes. Now you say the directions are cryptic. Are they that way intentionally or is it just because the path you're taking is uh, different or difficult to follow or... Oh, it's definitely intentional. John Clawson is the rally master, and he does an amazing job in setting up the route. And we're off the highway. We're not just droning on for 70 miles at a time. Instead, we're taking weird left and right turns and driving through neighborhoods in the middle of the high desert uh, in the middle of nowhere, California, simply to get in three more turns that gives you more opportunities to screw up. So he intentionally takes you in these kind of weird mazes and way out of the way that you never thought you'd be. And then suddenly you'll turn and you're right on the highway. And you're just, you don't know how you got there, but you just hope that you're on time uh, when you cross through the checkpoint. So how much advance notice do you get with the directions? Do you get them in each leg or do you get them the night before or the week before? We get them 30 minutes before we leave in the morning. Oh. So it's my navigator's job to make sure I'm awake and the car's running. And then he gets those directions and marks them up for the day. And then we're out on the road. Oh, well, that's that's interesting and different. Uh, and you said the gentleman's name who organized it is? Uh, so John Clawson is the rally master, and Jeff Thumb is the overarching organizer uh, and really the face of the Great Race. And he's just done a great job in keeping it going. It's something the Great Race started all the way back in the 1980s, and it used to be this epic cross-country adventure, and they'd go coast-to-coast every year. And it really started to dwindle in participation. And in the 90s, it actually took a couple of years off until Coker's Hire purchased it uh, with Corky Coker leading the charge and Jeff Thumb organizing it. And they brought it back, but instead of going coast to coast, they reeled it in and made it point-to-point adventures throughout the country. And with that, it allowed for more participation. So what got you interested in doing this? Really, it passed through Manhattan, Kansas uh, years ago, like back in 2001. And my father and I, he was really into cars, and we said, well, it's only a half an hour away from my hometown in Milford, so we're, we'll go over and watch them roll through for a lunch stop or something. And watching 120 cars roll through just on the minute and these big pre-war cars was really wild, and I, it kind of always stuck in the back of my mind, but I always thought it was something I'd never had the chance to actually do until I started at Haggerty back in 2013. We were a sponsor of the race, and we started running two cars in and two teams and i thought well you know maybe i can scheme my way into the driver's seat or or a navigator seat i'd be a terrible navigator but i'd be an okay driver uh and we started running the green dragon and jonathan Klinger uh, offered up the seat and i had to take it oh so he offered it up i was figuring you had to arm wrestle him for it <laughs> you know honestly it sure seems that way and my navigator brett and i really like to joke uh it's one of the more popular questions that we actually get out on the race is well why did you guys get to drive and half of it is because of our pre-war car knowledge because a 1917 peerless doing a big adventure like this takes a decent amount of knowledge and experience sure and the other half is we fit <laughs> it sounds oh. really funny and kind of dumb no but, no it uh, doesn't <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know, but uh, the car is set up for somebody that is, is about six foot two to drive, and then the smaller the navigator, the better. So uh, 
contrary to you, my navigator, Brett Laronis, is a pretty compact guy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that hurt. Oh, smoked him on his own podcast. That was lovely. Thank you. Uh, Nothing like getting kicked (laughs) in the teeth. Uh, We're talking to... (laughs) Who are we talking to? We're talking to Kyle Smith, associate (laughs) editor of Haggerty Magazine. Uh, Kyle, uh, so Klinger gave up his spot. Uh, Tell us about the car. Tell us about the Green Dragon and uh, its history. And I know there's also a tie-in with our school. Yeah. So we're both McPherson College alum and this car, the Green Dragon, started life as a 1917 Peerless. It was a big town sedan, some kind of... Oh, it was. Car. Yeah, it was. And then in the 1920s, it got got converted into a board track racer. Uh, so the body that's on it currently is not what it raced under in the 20s, um, or raced with in the 20s. But it sat and languished for many years, and a gentleman by the name of John Hollingsworth, um, a friend of Haggerty and a friend of McPherson College, picked it up in the 1980s and built the aluminum body that's on it now and uh, did he tr- built it to campaign in the Great Race. Did he build it with that kind of modified cowl, or was that part of its board track body? I believe none of the body that's currently on it was part of the board track heritage. Because what is on there now looks like it's meant for longer distance racing and it's meant to protect the driver a bit more. For sure. And the small windshield is comical almost because if you're really sitting up (laughs) proud, that windshield doesn't do a thing for you. Uh, And if there was one thing I could change on that car, you might as well just take it off. It doesn't do anything for the driver or the navigator. But he campaigned it in the early 2000s and the 90s, so it's run every great race since 1997. Uh, so it's this long-running competitor. So many people on the great race are long-time participants. It kind of gets addicting to a lot of people. And when we first showed up in it last year, uh, running it for the first time as rookies, uh, it was really entertaining at every stop. And whenever we were somewhere, people would come up and tell us about the first time that they met the Green Dragon. And they're, t- they're telling us stories from 2003, 2006, because we're passing through cities that we had been through or the car had been through previously. And they'd remember the car and tell us stories about it. Is it nerve-wracking at all to compete in a rally in your own employer's car? Oh, yeah, for sure. And <laughs> we broke it last year. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> We got that right out of the way immediately. Is there is uh, there docked pay for breaking the company car, or is it uh, <laughs> is that is that more expected? I was panicking honestly when we put it on the boot truck at the end of the day because we tried to fix it on the side of the road. Don't get me wrong, we had everything apart and we're using everything we could. And as soon as it went on the street sweet truck, I picked up the phone and I called Klinger and I was like, "Hey, we broke the car." Oh no! What what happens now? Like, well, we'll fix it. It's it's no big deal. It's a car; they break. And I was like, "Well, that sounds like a really canned answer for <laughs> your can." How's your resume look? Yeah, we should update that now but it ended up being fine we had a new active machine it's part of campaigning a car like this well, how- we really believe at Haggerty about saving driving and going out and doing these fun things in cars and the reality is stuff's gonna break did it just break from age and wear it did yeah so if you actually got a look at the part it's a giant beefy axle oh, i'm sure because it is the original rear end and it had just spider cracked and fatigued right near the, the center section right where the splines were cut and we were bouncing along down some of the roughest roads in maine that i've ever oh, been on yeah. and i think what was happening was the rear suspension has a little bind to it so it really doesn't have a ton of travel and so I think it was picking up that wheel oftentimes 
and slamming down so it was shock loading it and eventually it just had enough and broke. Uh, we're talking with uh, Kyle Smith, a Haggerty associate editor and great race competitor. When we come back, we'll talk about how one preps a 102-year-old car for a 2,300-plus mile event, the art and science of timed rally driving, Kyle's love of weird classic Chevys, and a lot more coming up next on Driven Radio. Welcome back to Driven Radio, coming to you from Driven Radio Studios in Overland Park, Kansas. Uh, when we left, we were speaking to Kyle Smith about uh, competing in the great race on a 1917 Peerless Speedster. So last year was your first year. Yeah, you and your uh, your navigator, Brett, didn't quite finish the race, but you got several days into it before the axle broke. Uh Tell us what it's like preparing for that for the first time. I'm guessing you probably quizzed John Klinger endlessly about what to do, but how do you prep the car for it? Really, there's not a whole lot that we knew. We, we didn't know what we were getting into is the, the bottom of it. And so we tried to go in as prepared as we could. And what that involved was just making sure that the car was running right and would start every time we pushed the button. And was I was able to shift it consistently because it is a 1917 peerless v8 and a, just an agricultural heavy three-speed transmission and so shifting it's just there and has its own touch and just making sure that i could drive the car consistently and then my navigator really just got to uh bask in being in the dark did you uh did you have a man of the cloth come in and bless it before you set up <laughs> oh we should have if anything, we should have. Maybe we wouldn't have broken the axle if we would have known. <laughs> <laughs> we could have. Uh, but yeah, so I just spent a lot of time driving the car and tried to spend as much time as I could behind the wheel. And my navigator was often riding with me and not doing anything because he couldn't really prepare as much to read directions that we don't have. Uh, so he was more or less figuring out how he was going to do the math and adapt to certain situations. But we didn't know what we were going to be faced with. We kind of went into it naive and hoped for the best. And we were putting together a decent run and then broke the axle on day six and sat on the side of the road for three hours. Oh, that's a shame. So you finished 19th. I mean, what what single thing made the biggest difference, you know, from not finishing to finishing all the way up in 19th? Aside from the axle. Aside from, yeah, aside from, you know, breaking an axle. Minor detail. The car, yeah, the car made the run. And that really is what made the difference but <laughs> the car would have made it we could have been in last place and the big thing within a great race is to finish is to win and we kind of 
joked about it last year. We were like, well, we'll finish. The cars run every great race since 97. And then you guys the broke it. Gonna break. Yeah, <sighs> then we broke it, and we didn't get to finish, and so we felt kind of stupid. So we went at it this year with an attitude of to finish is to win. And if we came down with a good score, we came down with a good score. But on day two, they took us across the high desert all the way through Northern California. We were 11 and a half hours in the car, uh, not counting lunch and some of the other uh, ancillary stuff. Oh, man, and that sounds, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a big day in the car. And so that morning, we hit some really steep grades. We were hitting altitude. The car was unhappy. And we both looked at each other and went, if we don't finish, we can have the best day in the world today. It's harder to make it to the finish line. It doesn't matter. We learned that last year. And if we don't so, finish, we die in the middle of the high desert. So one of the two. Right. There were vultures circling us the entire way. We can't go fast enough to outrun a vulture. This is starting to sound uh, like uh, Hunter Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. We can't stop here. This is backcountry. We had to be halfway to that book. We just needed a little bit more LSD. <laughs> oh, all right, a lot more. So, uh, yes. So going into it as a second year competitor, uh, what are the biggest changes year over year? Uh, how'd you change your approach this year? And uh, what was the single biggest change you did this year? Really, the biggest change was we knew what was going to happen. So from when we woke up in the morning, how long we needed to eat breakfast at the hotels, what we needed to get the car ready for the day, where we needed to be to pick up our directions, how much time we needed for all of that, just took so much anxiety out of every day. We could wake up in the morning and just already be relaxed. And if we got in the car relaxed every day, we'd take care of the car. We felt like we weren't behind the eight ball. And a couple of days this year, we still screwed up. We missed our start time. Uh, you know, we thought it was 8.30. Well, it was actually 7.30. So oh, no. 45 minutes late. Like, oh, yeah, we're 15 minutes early. That's great. Well, we were 45 minutes late. So, <laughs> that's great for a timed event. Yeah, that's a good start to the day. Yeah, you know, when you're playing a game of seconds, just go ahead and be 45 minutes late. You're going to have a great day. Make it interesting. And that's just not the case. Yeah, so it did make it interesting, and we pulled it off every day. Uh, but it was only because we knew exactly what we were walking into, whereas that first year, we'd wake up in the morning, we were nervous if we were getting things right. And this year, we could just go in and know and have some confidence. And that just made all the difference. How do you go about prepping a 102-year-old car for a 2,300-mile event? You know, it's tough because I have to admit, I don't prepare the car. We do have mechanics here at Haggerty since Haggerty owns the car. Uh, that really takes care of it. Oh, there's the upside drive of driving it. a company car. Yeah. yeah, there you go. You know, it's, it's quite nice. Quite nice, I, I have to admit. Uh, but really, I drive the snot out of that thing for three weeks leading up to it, typically. Uh, and even longer if the snow uh, leaves and the salt gets off the road. As soon as they'll let me take the car out, I'm beating the crap out of it and hoping that it breaks while we're in Traverse City, uh, whatever it's going to be. So we have this knack of something will always break in the week leading up to Great Race. So this year, we crapped an alternator the week before. Oh, wow. And we were actually, yeah, we were doing a, a Facebook Live video for Haggerty talking about how awesome it is, how great the car is. And, oh, we'll just press the button and fire it up so you guys can hear this engine. And it just clicks. <laughs> and we just look like idiots. <laughs> we're speaking to Kyle Smith, uh, associate editor of Haggerty Magazine and uh, great race competitor. Uh, so 
if you've got mechanics prepping it, that probably goes a long way towards helping. Um, is one of you a, a mark specialist for this car? You said that you both have a great uh, early uh, 1900s car knowledge. Is Peerless something that is uh, in your wheelhouse? Not necessarily, no. Uh, if anything, I'm a Model A guy. And then my navigator's just kind of, he's got a general, well-rounded knowledge of classic cars and uh, is handy. But neither of us really know Peerless uh, specifically. But the nice thing is it's just a big, lazy, pre-war V8. It's cubic inch. Yeah, it's unstressed. 330 cubic inch, 80 horsepower. I mean, when you think about it, it's really not working that hard. Five to one compression. Uh, wow. And so the internals of it's it. It's five to really one? Distorted. Five to one, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's, it's pretty lazy. So when you say five to one, and we went up to as high as 9,000 feet of altitude, and it just, you thought it had 80 horsepower at sea level. You take it to 9,000 feet out. It's got 40. It has nothing. <laughs> it's got eight. <laughs> it has nothing. So you said you you only get about a half an hour with the directions for the next section. And mm-hmm. uh, a lot of guys, and I, you guys included, were finishing within seconds of the time allotted right. for that section. Is there an art to getting it down to that, being that accurate? There is, and a lot of it lies on my ability to accelerate the same way every time, to break the same way, to take every corner the same way. Oh, wow. So when we take a left-hand corner, let's say, my navigator has time charts that factor how much time we're going to lose uh, for that maneuver, and so I just have to make sure that I execute that maneuver exactly the same every time. How much so, does weather affect that? Because I know you drove through rain, you drove through snow, you drove through desert. We got it all this year, and it was we experienced all four seasons. And it really affects it, same with the altitude. And the car loses power. Well, we set up all of our time charts. Traverse City, where we're home base, is about 1,000 feet above sea level. And so we had almost all of the power of the car on tap and sure. you take it up to altitude and he tells me to accelerate to 45 miles an hour and the car won't do longer. it <laughs> right it's gonna take longer to get to 45 miles an hour and so it's a mix of me taking care of the car and trying to get as close as i can to everything and my navigator knowing that we're not going to be able to do certain things and adjusting our numbers on the fly to what he thinks we're going to be able to do. And so I really hand a lot of it to him in that he's an amazing navigator. He made a lot of adjustments that I never even know about. He just tells me to go and when to turn and what to do. And I just have to do it as best I can. The thing I'm curious about, though, is how do you resist the primal urge to just put the hammer down and get there as quickly as possible, considering that there is the word race, you know, in the name of the event? It's so tempting. (laughs) There's two reasons. There's two reasons that I don't flat foot this car. And one of them is it's really terrifying to drive this car fast. (laughs) It's a big car. It's a big car. It's 3,300 pounds with us in it. So it's fairly light, but the suspension is very stiff. And it skitters all around the road. And so you get it. We run it fairly fast, uh, which brings point number two is oftentimes we'll end up behind. And so remember, we're trying to arrive at that checkpoint exactly when they tell us to. If we make a wrong turn like we did this year 
and you end up three cars back. You know, you make a turn and you catch a car oh, no. and you say, oh, there's three cars behind us in the start order. We're three minutes behind. So <laughs> you have two choices. You either sit there and you accept that you're three minutes behind and your score is now crap, or you get to rally and have some fun and you put the pedal down and you go as fast as you can and try and get back into your spot. And I'm sure you would have and never so, intentionally taken a wrong turn just to be able to put the hammer down. <laughs> is no, that like leaving 45 minutes that. late so you can put the hammer down? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, intentionally sleeping in. You know, it may or may not be instances of dragon time, just a little bit. So what what is top in, speed for an 80 horsepower peerless? You know, in a safe environment where the speed limit was 75 miles an hour, I believe we ran that car to every bit of 75 miles an hour. Wow. And it probably still has more legs. You got to be more of a man than me to take I'm, it there. I'm wondering we'll how much play is in there. the steering on a 1917 Peerless. Not a lot. And it's really? kind of like Model T steering. If you've ever driven a T, uh, how it's a really quick ratio. You only have it's to rarely to straight. Lock to lock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So you're kind of, you're dancing down the road and any effort you put into the wheel gives the car direction. It's actually fairly tight. We've rebuilt it. You know, Hollingsworth, I believe he changed some of the geometry. And so it really follows the road quite nice. But then at the same time, uh, it's really darty is how I would describe it. It just, you point it one direction and goes there. That's fairly impressive, though. And that's what you want at high speed. Yeah, yeah darty. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Kyle, thank you so much for being with us. We've been speaking with Kyle Smith, associate edit- editor for Haggerty and a great race competitor. Uh, we'll have all of Kyle's social media links on readthedriven.com. Kyle, thanks for taking the time. I wish we had more time. We'll have to have you back on to talk about Corvairs. And uh, we've got a couple other questions for you that we'll have to save for next time. Yeah, sounds good. It was great talking to you, Vern and Brett. Yeah, great to be with you. Thank you so much. Coming up next in Accent Lane Live, we'll be talking about the 8th generation Corvette Stingray debuting this week in California and who the target customer will be. Uh, This and more coming up here on Driven Radio. Welcome back to Driven Radio, coming to you from Driven Radio Studios in Overland Park, Kansas. Hey, uh, so by the time everybody hears this, the new Corvette will have had its debut mm-hmm. in Orange County, California. That's supposed to be Thursday night at uh, 8.30 Central Time. Um, After which, of course, the flow of automotive news can go back to focusing on other cars as opposed I, to constantly being yeah. a barrage of new Corvettes. Listen, I'm as hardcore a car Corvette fan there is, and... I'm ready to not be hearing about the 8th Gen Corvette anymore. Of course, we're going to get a they week They have done of, an amazing job of promoting it, though. Well, just yeah. Just uh, leaking little things that can all be made into their own news story that everybody has to talk about and debate. Again, back to, the, back to the worst-kept secret sure. in the car world, uh, aside from maybe the Bronco. But... <laughs> 
they're going to launch this thing or they're going to debut this thing in Orange County on Thursday night. By the time our show posts, it will be out for a couple of days. The speculation so far is that it's going to have a modified uh, LS platform that they're going to call the LT1 again. It's going to be around 500 to 550 horse mid-engine configuration, which is a first. Uh, Zora Duntoff pushed for that forever and ever and ever, and it's finally going to become a reality. And the pricing for the base model which they're going to call the Stingray again, is supposed to be around a hundred thousand dollars. I'm sure. I'm guessing it'll be a hundred grand with a few options, and then if you do a two LT or a three LT, it'll be a hundred and ten or fifteen. Or and of course, a, a number of detractors have already started to kind of pile on about the hundred thousand dollar price point, which leaves me to to kind of ask, even as somebody who's not necessarily a Corvette guy, like how much less expensive is a mid-engine car with over five hundred horsepower supposed? to be well uh, true and I, I don't disagree with the idea of you know pushing that price into a six-figure range i'm hoping that it comes out with a base price that's significantly less than that sure but it's gonna i'm be hoping it's free i mean well just if they just give them out that'd be great yeah or they trade them for 61 impalas i'd do that sure uh but when you look at it and what they're talking about, and, you know, they've road tested this thing extensively. There have been uh, spy photos of it all over the country and then lots and lots and lots of Nürburgring shots. Um, I'm kind of wondering about where performance will be. But I started looking through uh, a pretty healthy list of other mid-engine high-performance cars. And... Nothing else really plays right around $100,000. Not even close. Uh, You know, if you look at what you would think traditionally Chevy Ford rivalries, Camaros and Mustangs and and that sort of thing, the Ford GT is 647 horsepower, but it's got a base price at 450 grand. Uh, You know, uh, the Ferrari... Uh, 488 at 661 horsepower is $250,000 for a base price and then you add any kind of options and that just goes through the roof. And then you've also just got to get one from Ferrari too. Well, there's there's that. Uh, the Acura NSX, which is a bit of a hybrid because it's got a gas V6 and electric engines, but the combined horsepower is 557 horse and that thing starts at $157,000. Uh, the 436 six horse uh lotus avora gt starts at 260 uh lamborghini huracan at 630 horse and 261 horsepower you know you start looking at all the other cars that are mid-engine cars 500 plus horsepower and nothing else is in the corvette's price range nothing not even close no not even close and but it's much the same i mean corvette has always kind of been that way where when the uh, the c7 came out it was also you know far below anything of equal performance absolutely well and that's always been the big thing with corvettes it's bang for the buck you're not going to get that amazing european interior or even in the case of the nsx the japanese interior uh the fit and finish though really really good for chevy oh sure isn't really on par with what you would expect from ferrari or lamborghini or mclaren but if that base motor is 500 to 550 horsepower the range we've kind of been you know what they've been leaking at a hundred thousand dollars that's a hell of a bargain Oh, sure. That's that's way cheap, but it also makes you wonder, what was their target market? Who are they going after? Are they going after people 
who shop Lamborghini, McLaren, Porsche, uh, other mid-engine high-performance cars, or are they trying to convert the Corvette Faithful over to a mid-engine idea? And how many people are they going to be able to, like you said, convert into that mid-engine layout? you got to think that some of the traditional Corvette buyer, I think the Corvette's always been very approachable at the base level. And it is. You just got to wonder if somebody walks into a showroom who is going to buy a previous generation base type car and looks at a mid-engine car and thinks, eh, maybe that's too much car for me. Like maybe that's just too exotic. Maybe I don't want something like that. See, and I gotta, I gotta wonder if there's not a lot of guys like me. I've had six Corvettes. Uh, my own personal car is not one I was trying to sell. And I look at this and I just think, okay, this is the next evolution in the car I love so much that's always been such a bargain for what you got. Sure. And I've said for a long time that if they ever built a mid-engine Corvette, I'd buy one. And I'm still kind of, I'm in that camp. I'd, I'd love to have one. Now, that said, there are still a fistful of front-engine Corvettes that I want to own. Oh, sure. I haven't yet. Yeah. It makes you think if those ZR1 cars are going to get real cheap. Even, not even oh, necessarily so. the current generation, but even the one before. Well, the 6th Gen ZR1s are already, you can find some of those sub $50,000. Which, think about that car for sub 50. 640 horsepower with a zero to six, a sub four zero to 60 mm-hmm. for under 50 Gs. Yeah, pretty cool. You're talking about, you know, Acura sedan money mm-hmm. uh, for that. So, yeah, amazingly cool. I'm really, really, really excited to see the mid-engine Corvette come out. Zora Duntoff pushed for one for years and years and years, and he died in 96, and now they're finally coming to fruition. I really would love to have one. And, you know, as much as I love that 61 Impala I have, I'd trade that sucker in a hot minute to get my hands on a mid-engine vet. Sure. Um, I think they'll be cool. I'm excited no, to see I'm, him. I'm excited I'm, to see him I'm going excited down the road. to see him too. Yeah, that's kind of the nice thing about uh, what I'm looking forward to most about the mid-engine Corvette. Speaking of somebody who's not focused on Corvettes, is just that it's a Corvette, so you know they're going to produce plenty of them, and so there's going to be mid-engine cars. Parts will be available. And, well, well, there's going to be mid-engine Corvettes running around all over. Like a mid-engine car will become a more common sight. Well, and I, I welcome that. I think it's cool. No, absolutely, and that's that's the thing. You know, you think about what it takes to own and maintain a Ferrari four. Or even a 458 or a Lamborghini or a McLaren, and all of those. I mean, you're talking really exorbitant maintenance bills. Sure. And parts availability is zip, and you can only have them serviced in certain shops. Well, we got to preface that with parts availability is zip unless you give up a vital organ or two. Yeah. Well, you know, everybody. You can have any parts you want. Everybody's got a couple kidneys. Uh, So. It just it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I love the fact that the Corvette now is going to be a near exotic car, uh, and I'm I'm really really excited. I to just see like what the, happens. The, the whole fact that they're taking a risk. I mean, they're just completely changing everything. Which it, to me is uh, it's intriguing because most manufacturers make a living playing it safe. No, so. and I think that's very exciting, and I'm really anxious to see what it is. Thank you so much for spending time with Driven Radio. We love what 
we do, and we wouldn't be able to do it without the support of our, our audience. You can find us online at readthedriven.com, follow us on Facebook at forward slash Driven Radio Show, on Twitter at Driven Radio Show, and everywhere fine podcasts are heard. I'm Brett Hatfield for Vern Astis, thanking you. Oh, well. I can't leave out our intrepid engineer, uh, Mr. Matt. Uh, Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time here on Driven Radio. 